Welcome to another edition of the Always Be Testing Podcast with your host, Ty DeGrange. Get a guided tour of the world of growth, performance marketing, customer acquisition, paid media, and affiliate marketing. We talk with industry experts and discuss experiments and their learnings in growth, marketing, and life. Time to nerd out, check your biases at the door, and have some fun talking about data-driven growth and lessons learned. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Always Be Testing podcast. I'm your host, Ty DeGrange, and I'm thrilled today to have Adam Robinson. What's up, man? Hey, Ty. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm good. I'm good. I am excited to dive in with you and talk about all the things, retention and uh, business and life. We uh, we dive into some learnings here and it's usually a lot of fun and let's uh, let's roll in and do it. Let's do it. Yeah. So, so Adam Robinson, for those of you who don't know in the audience, he's the CEO of retention.com. He's had some awesome learnings in various areas in business. He's made some really uh, great build in public kind of comments and in candor and his experiences in, in building and really excited to dive into it. it, it he's a prominent D2C e-com uh, personality and business person in marketing in, in the uh, Austin area. It's nice to ha- be here in the same area with you. So let's rate, let's jump in. And as we were just talking about, if you are a DDC person in the Austin area and you want to get involved in, if a listener is, and you want to get involved in my direct consumer wake surf club, I do it once a month in the evening on Wednesdays. Email me, adam at retention.com. I would love to invite you. There you go. It's a good call to action, right? <laughs> uh, let's, let's, let's get people involved right away. Yeah. Just right off the bat. Beautiful. So Adam, tell us about your background. How did you get into all this stuff? I was a trader. I lived in New York. I traded, I worked at Lehman Brothers and traded credit default swaps for 10 years. They made a movie about that called The Big Short. When I showed up in New York, my roommate started Vimeo, the video sharing website in my apartment. I watched that whole thing happen and it made me think that I wanted to be like him. And I did. <laughs> so that's amazing. after the financial crisis, I quit. And I'm like, I've saved some money. I could spend it on business school or I could spend it trying to make myself an entrepreneur. So I I opted for the latter. And it just started this five-year, like, bare-knuckle brawl. It was horrible trying to get my first company to sustainable. And it happened to be that it ended up being in the email marketing space. I don't particularly care about email. I know a lot about it now, but like, it wasn't like, follow your passion. Okay, email marketing, right? Like it just, I was working on five different things and it happened to work. So 10 years later, I ended up knowing a shitload about email. And that company was a really good lifestyle business, but it was in, in competition with MailChimp and Clavio, which is just like a, it's a horrible space to be in. Like it's like, I like to say it's like selling cola against Coke and Pepsi. It's like, super mature. The products are very undifferentiated. Like it's all brand and they're spending billions of dollars on marketing. It's just impossible to compete. So I was always trying to figure out how to break out of this ceiling. Like I was just stuck. And um, I was trying to do stuff MailChimp wasn't doing because it was just such a hard offer to compete with. Like, how are you going to be more free than MailChimp? You're not, (laughs) you know? (laughs) came across this identity stuff and it was so intriguing to me, you know, the idea that you could get an email address out of a person who didn't fill out, who didn't give it to you. (laughs) 
<laughs> right? Like somebody could hit your site and you could just know who this person is. Captivating, right? To somebody who's never heard of it before. It's like, it sounds like magic. So MailChimp definitely wasn't doing that and they never would. So I set off on this like year and a half journey of trying to figure out how to do it. Finally figured it out. My idea was that it would be what differentiated my email app from the rest. Launched the feature. Everybody used the feature. Nobody wanted to use the rest of the platform. So it became clear to me that it was a bad product if it was inside of my bad ESP. It was a great product, probably. You know, every indication is that it would be if I spun it out, connected it to everything, and then launched it on its own. And that was like 2020, basically, November 2019. About a year and a half ago, it became clear to us that big Shopify stores were like our power users. Like, never churned, paid us way more than anybody else, bought faster than anybody else, never submitted a single support ticket and referred all of their friends. And we're like, okay, that's the audience we should focus on. We built some more features for them, like product, cart, checkout, abandonment, audience expansion. And here we are today, and we're about to, so like kind of one of the problems now is we can really only sell to stores like our products amplify whatever throughput is going through a Shopify store. So if there is a lot going through, there's a lot we can amplify and the product looks really good. The lower that revenue number gets and the lower those abandonment yeah. emails flow revenue gets, the harder it is for us to actually show return on what we're getting paid. Because like below a certain point, it doesn't even make sense for us to like onboard people. I'm really excited that we're about to launch a $60 a month product for everybody. And the problem that it is solving is massive. So I call it the signal gap problem. There's all of this stuff happening on your Shopify site. Apple is ratcheting down every day on the events that can actually make it to Meta and Klaviyo. On April 23rd this year, they ratcheted Meta and Klaviyo back to seven days for tracking people, which is a massive fucking problem. Like if somebody clicks through an ad. Yeah. It used to track them for a year, right? Six months, whatever. Now, if they click through that and they come back eight days later, Facebook has no idea who they are, which you're like, okay, who cares? Well, the reason Facebook works so well is because they knew who that person was looking at a product and they showed them an ad. Now, all Facebook sees is an anonymous user. So our $60 product will track that person for six months to 12 months or something like that, depending on whatever. Pretty compelling case. And for the Clavio flows, it's the same problem, right? If somebody puts something in the cart and leaves eight days later after they bought something, no, nobody, like it's nobody to Clavio. So I'm really excited. There's some other vendors who solve this problem through a different solution. One's called Elevar, one is called Blot Out, one is called Blackroy AI. They're doing tag management. It's like a much it's like a super heavy installa installation, and it's very difficult to understand from what's written on their website what it actually is and why you would need it. I'm doing a done for you. Literally, you just like sign up on a type form, give us Shopify and Clavier permissions, and we'll just start emailing you the money we make you for $59 a month. <laughs> this is like, I I've never been so excited about a product. That's awesome, man. It's normally like, you kind of go the other way. You like start at a really low dollar price in SaaS and you go up. Like we started at this 20K ACV and now it's like very clear to me that mm -hmm. there's such a, like this is as big of a problem for a smaller guy. It's just, yeah. if you have to support your business with a sales force, like you can't, you know, these, these other 
yeah. solutions are too complicated to so sell to someone at, at that price, right? Like, yeah, you're basically going to hey, we're our customers are Shopify ecom consumer, fifty million minimum a year, right? Revenue to almost everybody is that is that kind of the well, right now it's three million and up, but still that's only like six to ten thousand stores, depending on what data set you look at. Yeah, it's not a lot. There's two two point five million active Shopify stores, <laughs> so. I think this new product is probably for like a hundred grand to three million of GMV. And I think there's like two hundred thousand stores in that band rather than like ten thousand, right? And they they should all be able to to see value off of it. But like this is the la- the remaining question is like how small is small to where either they don't see value or they just are like, I don't even care. This is a hobby. Yeah. They know it's a problem or they want to address it. Yeah. Do they even, it's like, yo, I can make you 180 bucks on a 60 buck investment. It's like, I don't care. But I have other stuff that's way more pressing than that. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. So we'll see. Wow. That's really cool. For the brands that are already engaged in the retention product. And I want to dive into the new product too, but like, what are some of the big like outcomes you've seen with retention with, with some of the chain core product? So the core product, like I said before, it's like True Classic and Dr. Squash are two of our biggest customers. They both make over $500,000 every month and they pay us like 10 to 20 grand. That is not indicative of a normal store. So like the dynamic with our product, like I said, is like the more volume that's going through, the more we can capture and amplify and our pricing doesn't increase like that. Like we just couldn't charge Dr. Squatch $2 million a year to like use our product. It doesn't, pricing doesn't work like that. Yeah. So it's a little unrepresentative of what a normal outcome would be for somebody who has like a $5 million store or like a $3 million store. We do like to beat other channels on a 12 month basis very comfortably. So if like people are looking for two to three X, it's like, I think four to five X over the course of 12 months, like given the the holiday, it will kick up and then it will calm down afterwards for, for a lot of D to C at the smaller end, which is like a 3 million. Like that's what we're trying to do. Be at least five X over 12 months. You know? Yeah. And that efficiency is awesome to be able to say, Hey, you're going to add something that's significantly more efficient than a lot of other levers you can pull is, is huge. Yeah. That's amazing. It's a high bar. You know, I've questioned whether that's even the right sales strategy because kind of a problem we have, we have, we have a, right now, this is how our deal is structured. I don't know if it's going to be like this forever, but we have a 60 day opt out. And basically it's like a 12 month deal with 60 day opt out. And basically the performance kind of accumulates over the course of the year because like one of the products is we're just selling the, the the people a list of emails and these emails, they come back and they repeat purchase. And kind of the only way to look at how that list performed over the course of the year is look at how many purchases there were over the course of the year. I think the only way to test it is do a holdout test. You hold out 5%, don't mail them, you mail the other ones, and then you see what the incremental would be that way. But like when you're talking about ROI of a list, it's just going to go up over the course of a year as these emails buy and we give you more emails. Um, but then we're like holding this gun to our head saying, if you don't see what you want in 60 days, just quit. It's, it's confusing to me whether we're doing the right thing or not. 
with pricing. Yeah, I think a lot of businesses in, in our world struggle with that a little bit to determine like, how do we offer a ton of value, but don't undercut ourselves or go too far, you know? Yeah, or just set expectations in the wrong way, mm-hmm. which I think is a large, a large part of it. Absolutely. It's like you want to move fast, but if you move too fast, then you're not explaining it well enough. It might be a good uh, segue a little bit. You've talked a little bit about like lessons learned. What are, what are some of those big lessons you've learned this year? Oh, God. <laughs> For background on this year, in October of last year, and it's currently July 27th, in October of last year, we had six employees. And we were at 13 million ARR. We hired like 50 in 60 days because we identified the Shopify audience as our perfect candidate. And then I didn't really, we didn't know a lot about the universe. So like we sort of overestimated the size of the market. And then we were also being a bit, we were overselling people like just because of how it all played out, you know, it was like, mm-hmm. so the overselling people and overestimating the size of the market made us think that the TAM was actually much, I thought there was 50,000 stores that we could sell to. And it turns out there's like six to 10, right? And I thought we were doing a $30,000 deal. And it turns out we're doing a 16 or $18,000 deal. So like this opportunity set's just like way different than I thought. Mm-hmm. So like we hired too many people, you know, I like, ha- I had this vision of, in the beginning, like, let's have a lot of people creating demand out there with these partner channels and agencies and events and everything else. And then we'll have just like a few AEs who are just flooded with all this demand. And I thought culturally, that's like a great thing for an org. Mm-hmm. Like a salesperson's on a phone and they're like, if you don't buy this right now, yep, I have like four other calls today. Like, it's just a good mindset to be in. Yep. Create scarcity and demand. It's like, overestimating the TAM and overselling people. It's like, I made this crazy goal to get to 50 million ARR by the end of the year. And we were at 15 at the end of last year. And it just, we hired too many people. Then all of a sudden it's like, well, we like these people. And and by the way, like in April 1st, like everything stopped for people selling into these stores that we sell into, like for whatever reason, it was just this weird slowdown. So we kind of pivoted the org to be like hunters. And then last week, which like, it's just a different feel, right? Like everyone's calendar is 20% full rather than like a few people's calendars, 120% full. Mm -hmm. And then our VP sales, he has his reasons. You just had a kid, he resigned last week. And then we decided, do we replace this guy? Or should we just take our sales team from 15 to four and go back to you know, what we had intended originally before all this happened. So that was like something that happened in sales work. Wow. We're hiring for five roles right now. It's not like we're yeah, sort of, oh my God, like the walls are on fire. Like, I think we're going to generate like 350 grand of free cash this month. Like it's not a, oh my God, we're like, we need to get smaller. We need to get smaller for. Yeah. So like things that I learned, I felt like there was this land grab that, that needed to happen and I was like very desperate. It was like a FOMO feeling, almost like buying crypto at the highs, you know, very similar. Like, uh, and it's just not who our, like our team is as a company. It's not, there's this saying, what got you here won't get you there. But like, 
I don't think that the fundamental elements of what I deem an excellent business or what I would look at and be like, that is the best business, which is like, in many ways, what I had before we did this, like to me, it's like, I love in SaaS, super high revenue per employee, super high capital efficiency. I like profitable companies with strong growth. I like kind of this paradigm. It's not necessarily an inbound sales model, but this paradigm where- mm-hmm it kind of always feels like it's busting at the seams as it's growing. Mm-hmm. And that's because like products getting pulled out of you. You're at the, you're at the right size to where it feels like the market's pulling product out of you. And any company, you can fuck that dynamic up by just like having three times as many people in the department as there should be. Right. So yeah, there's just a lot of lessons in there. I also felt very desperate to get our brand out there and I just sponsored anything and everything, newsletters, podcasts, this, that, the other, And like the other lesson is when you're doing that and you're living that way and you're hiring people and they're spending money too, it just sets a horrible, cancerous sort of literally like a death. Like we would have never been profitable no matter how much money we made if I kept living like that. Yeah. So like another great lesson was just like if you don't run – and by the way, we were running – we were paying dividends before, right? So like when you're like – our executive team's all getting these huge checks. It's like, you're really thinking about like, okay, do I want to spend 50 grand sponsoring this event or do I want to like pay myself 30 grand and my two co-founders 20 grand, right? Like 30 grand's pretty nice extra, right? Yeah, it adds up. <laughs> so it's not it's not that you don't do that stuff. It, you, you just have to really want it when it's like cash in your pocket or, but when it turns into this thing where it's like, we need to be everywhere, you know, it, it felt like a venture back product and, and there's no accountability for like budget or like the value of money or anything. It just, it goes off the rails so fast. So that was another massive lesson that I learned. Just like, if you don't run a tight ship, especially when you have a lot of people spending money, like you will never be profitable ever. The only reason we weren't unprofitable is because I didn't have any money in the bank account when we started hiring people. Like we had... 600 grand of free cash flow, but we were distributing it out. There was only a couple hundred grand in the bank account. So like we couldn't burn. It just got to the point where it's like, all right, now we have to stop spending money. And by the way, this is terrifying. <laughs> like we have to like fix this problem somehow. So that's another huge lesson lesson that I hope yeah. no one has to learn because it's, it's just brutal. I feel you. And I, I've been through similar kind of evolutions as an entrepreneur and a business leader. And you learn you have to sometimes go through those lessons. And I think in the last couple of years, not, it's not like a lot of entrepreneurs didn't have a good financial rigor internally or a good finance person. Or I just think people have, sometimes you do have to legitimately learn those hard hard lessons and then you kind of recalibrate and apply. And, and, and it's not always that you're chasing for the wrong reasons. You're an entrepreneur because you are trying to take a swing for the fence and make something happen and take care of your people and your customers. And so it's uh, it's understandable stuff and it's not easy black and white or else everyone would do it. Like, like you said earlier, you, did, you don't just go to business school and plug in and expect to make a, make a unicorn. You, there's a lot of things that have to go right. A lot of decisions that you've, you've had to have made along the way just to get to where you are. It's impressive. Yeah. Many more wrongs than rights, but like the idea is that <laughs> you get like eight wrongs, in like two rights, one of them's okay, one of them's great. That's what I've yeah. observed. I love it. You've talked a bit about bringing in the right people as a company. We've felt it and learned it and lived it. And 
bringing, making sure that right person's in the right seat. When you think about talent and, and those concepts, how, how do you approach it and how do you kind of get it right more than get it wrong? Oh man. Well, it's so hard. So like, I have a lot to say about that. I mean, we just had a VP sales that quit. <laughs> like he fucking, we didn't fire him. He just quit. He just was like, I'm not, that. I can't take it. Yeah. Strangely, we added two people to our executive team last October and it literally felt like a family, you know, like a cultural, it felt like they had both been there for 10 years. Amazing. We have like identical values and think about business in the same way and like are, you know, principled in the same way and like whatever. On February 1st, we hired like seven directors and VPs. One remains. Wow. <laughs> like it's that level. It's like, and look, part of it was there were just a lot of things that happened since February in this market that we're in. And like this guy, this VP sales leaving, like we weren't going to downsize the sales team if he's, was managing them and stay. He just decided he wasn't the guy. And it's like, well, I'm not going to go find another VP sales right now when like Diana can just go from the CRO role, do it, manage four people, figure out a B2B product for, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. the answer is, I don't know how to hire people. Uh, this attempt, I would consider that a fail. I, I would hope that the next time we do that, like maybe we hire VP marketing at some point, like, mm -hmm man, it's just so hard. Like we hired this incredible yeah. VP partnerships who was the right guy at the right time. I thought the agency thing was going to be everything for us. And when it played out, the agency motion that worked for us looked a lot like an affiliate or influencer motion. It was like not the agency owner being the gatekeeper of our technology because our technology is perceived as somewhat risky and it's just not in the incentive of an agency to direct attention of their employees to deploy this. Almost in any circumstance, there's a certain type of agency that will. But like the $1,000, $500 month commission is just like not even to jeopardize a 20K customer for that. It doesn't make sense, right? And yeah, I mean, we combined our teams, our partnership teams, because they were basically doing the same thing. And there was like territory conflict and all this. And then this guy, it, we all voted that, the guy on the other side was the right one to run the whole team. And then you're in a situation where it's like, okay, this guy's making like, you know, three times as much as the guy that's going to be his boss. And he's VP partnership. The other guy's director of affiliate. Like <laughs> it doesn't work. Right. So like, <laughs> I don't know how I would have ever foreseen that, but this guy's incredible. Yeah. It's almost like, it's like a butterfly effect in a weird way where, yeah, you could have gone out and reinvented the wheel and hired a new VP of sales, but you weren't going to. And not to say that if folks coming in or leaving dictate your moves as an organization, but it does make a material impact. And it's it's a bit of a butterfly effect, 3D chess, where it's like, okay, this person leaves, someone, you know, your CRO can absorb, yeah. can manage those four people. And we're off to the races in a similar approach, but it it kind of had, puts a little bit of a fingerprint on the organization and changes how you uh, address it. I had wanted an excuse to get way more lean anyway. And that was just like the catalyst. Like I'd been, something had felt wrong about how that team was operating relative to like how I had dreamed that it would operate. And yeah, it was just the perfect catalyst. Yeah. Are there, not to give the whole financial model to people, but is there some 
you know, get lean things that you think about. I mean, I think there's some, you know, good best practice out there in SaaS and in sales and marketing, and we can talk about those, but is there anything that kind of hit you recently in the last couple of years where you're like, man, I really need to be hitting this. I I have, I certainly have been much more cognizant of that in the last few years myself and uh, focused on it. I had just always loved running businesses that generated cash, especially in SaaS. You have to operate a certain, it's crazy. No one does that. Like if you're break even or a little profitable, it's like amazing. But like I was running this business, it was like 50% total margin or something like that. So like there's just a way you behave when that's the case. And I don't know, I should think about like how to articulate it, but it's kind of like mm-hmm. you just are like really scrappy. <laughs> And like what yeah. everyone else pays 50 grand for, you try to figure out a way to pay 2.5 grand for. <laughs> yeah. And it can be done. You can create incredible experiences for people and be very impactful for like very small amounts of cash if you're just willing to be creative. That's such a great reminder. Yeah. You, you touched on values a little bit and it's kind of like the core of the leadership team and you guys were really clicking. Can you elaborate on on those values a bit and like what, what kind of you hold dear and what kind of seemed to having you guys sing the same song. Yeah. So I think we're all this like bootstrapping scrappy mentality, like first and foremost, really kind of old school in the way that we think about the value of a dollar and how precious it is, is the lifeblood of your business. Mm-hmm. You know, people are very straightforward. We're excellent at communicating with each other. I don't know that Sometimes people outside of our circle would probably say that we're not good at communicating with them, <laughs> but it's very <laughs> fluid in this executive team. Yeah. And look, they're all just super high integrity individuals that have a very similar motivation. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of the, it's just a really good business partnership. I love it. What's something that's kind of like a life hack or a thing that you're, you're doing personally that's kind of helped you get through all this stuff and and succeed and as much as you have i try to just do the basic stuff exercise at least five days a week eat well i quit drinking a few years ago major life hack get good sleep all of that look at the sun like go outside during the middle of the day and just like yeah look at the blue sky and like let the sun hit my skin like all of the stuff that you can't really measure, but I just think it's like the core, like community, spend a lot of time with family. I have a 10 month old daughter. So like, just really nice. There's not really much else, but like when I'm not here, I'm trying to do stuff that is very basic human needs, time tested happiness stuff. Yeah. That's amazing. Couldn't have said it better. What do leaders need to do more of? What do they need to do less of? So I'll tell you what I'm trying to do. I am trying to do more focusing on less things, if that makes sense. So like not have 10 things to do at once, literally like have a list that's like two things or three things maybe. And until those are done, I'm not going to my sub list that I am constantly adding stuff to. That's what I think I should be doing more of. I love it. This is awesome, man. I could go on for hours. I know you got your, your surfing. I want to respectful of your time. Cause I think this has been a good 30 minutes of juicy bits and, um, we can all, you know, we can always pick up more in the future and excited to 
venture out into the surf world with you and hopefully see it the, the little gathering tonight but yeah i just just want to thank you for coming on it's been awesome to chat with you adam well thanks ty i know we can go deep on a lot of things and, and nerd out on other stuff too i'm sure and uh hopefully we'll get together in person soon so rock and roll we'll take care appreciate you adam thanks for coming on 